0: 6, Romans 6. While you're turning there, let me, just on kind of a personal note, ask if you would to be praying for uh, Crystal's grandmother and Crystal's family. Um, Crystal's grandmother has been in bad health for a while, and she has taken a turn for the worse, and um, they do not expect her to recover, they're not really doing anything else for her, and um, at this point, they're just praying that she will, she will go to, to meet the Lord in peace and uh, without pain. So uh, Crystal and the boys are there in, in Burlington, and I'm going to head that way after the service tonight. So just uh, do, do be in prayer for them if you would. I um, uh, sure would appreciate that. Um, Romans 6, and we're going to read verses 15 through 19. 15 through 19. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Thanks be to God that you "...who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Verse 15, we see the question at hand. Paul has just said in the verse before that we as Christians are not under law. We are under grace. Being under law means that the law has the decisive say concerning your fate. Being under grace means that God's grace has the decisive say concerning your fate. Being under grace and not under law means that you are not you are no longer under God's condemnation. You are a saved person you are secure in the grace of God and will be with God forever in heaven. And so the question is this, if the law no longer has the decisive say concerning our fate, and we no longer have to fear the condemnation of the law, then can we not now go break the law again and again and again as much as we please? Can we not go live lives of lawlessness if this is true? Fundamentally, we are dealing here in these verses with the same question we've been facing since the beginning of this chapter. Can a person be a Christian and live in sin? One might use twisted logic and say that Christians should live in sin so that God's grace will be all the more glorified. That's how the chapter began, with that kind of logic. Another might say that Christians should live in sin because we are no longer under the law. It's the way it's worded here. But either way, the central issue that Paul's getting at is this one. Christians cannot live that way. That's a misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who has died to sin. A Christian is someone who has been set free from sin. Oh, but Paul, isn't it possible to be dead to sin and yet to still live in it? Isn't it possible to be set free from sin and yet to still live in it? Paul's answer in these verses is this. If you are giving yourself to sin, you are a slave to sin. If you give yourself to sin, you are a slave to sin. Verse 16 is a reality check. That's what it is. Verse 16 is a reality check. Look at it with me again. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Notice that he starts off, do you not know? Meaning, you should know this. This is something that you should already know. And he doesn't say this because this is something that most Christians should know. He says, do you not know? Because the point he is making is so fundamentally and blatantly obvious that you would think he doesn't even need to say it. The point he's making is, is whoever you obey, that's your master. That's the point of verse 16. Whoever you obey, that's your master. So if you obey sin, if you give yourself in obedience to sin, sin is your master. If you obey righteousness... Righteousness is your master. So if you continue to obey sin and its desires, then sin is your master. You are not a servant of Christ. If you continue to obey righteousness and its desires, then righteousness is your master and you are a servant of Christ. So, Paul, can't we be free from sin and live in it? No, because if you're living in it, you're not free from it because you're giving yourself to it in slavery again and again and again. This is not a perfect illustration, but I think it makes the point. Imagine a newly married couple, all right, newlyweds, a newly married couple. And the husband really, really wants to get a puppy. He always had dogs as a child. He loves dogs. He has no children yet. He, he wants to have a dog in the home. The wife is very reluctant. Puppies make messes on living room carpets. In the end, however, the husband goes and chooses for himself a puppy. Now, in terms of the arrangement, the puppy belongs to the husband. He's the one that wanted the puppy. He's the one who agreed to take care of the puppy. But imagine that every moment the husband is at home, the puppy stays close to the wife. When the wife leaves the house for any reason, the puppy goes and lies by the door just waiting for her to return. The husband tries to give the puppy commands. The puppy will not obey him. But if the wife says, sit, the puppy sits. And the wife says, come. The puppy comes and sits in her lap. Who is the master of that puppy? Is it the husband or the wife? For every practical purpose, the wife has become the puppy's master. And so it is with us. We can say all day long that we belong to Christ. But if our heart is constantly hugging sin, eagerly obeying the impulses of sin, and only with some pressure and a half-heartedness do we do any acts of obedience to Christ, then who is our true master? Who we are is not determined by our talk. Who we are is determined by our walk. And we could say, whose we are is not determined by our talk. Whose we are is determined by our walk. I can say I serve sin. But if in my life I am evidencing every day righteous words and righteous deeds, I'm not serving sin. And I can say I serve Christ in righteousness. But if in my life every day I'm evidencing sinful words and sinful deeds, I do not serve Christ in righteousness. A tree is known By its fruit. And so Paul's answer to to verse 15, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Here's Paul's answer. If you give yourself to sin, you're not under grace. Paul, we're under grace. Let's go sin. If you go sin, you're not under grace. Grace produces people who serve righteousness. Righteousness. And if you serve sin, you're still sins. Sin does not work on terms of grace. Sin works on terms of law. Sin makes you guilty and then demands that you be punished. Sin is a turncoat friend. He lures you into wicked thoughts, lures you into wicked words and wicked deeds, and then turns to the judge and says, Aha, now judge, condemn him. Why does Paul need to say something so obvious as, the one you obey is your master? Because even a small child understands that. The one you obey is your master. Why does he need to say that? He needs to say it because our hearts can be so deceitful and our flesh so powerful that our judgment becomes so clouded and confused that we fail to understand the most basic and obvious truths about ourselves. How is it that people can live in utter sin knowing that they are living contrary to the will of Christ? Happily living contrary to the will of Christ and yet say, I'm a Christian. What kind of faulty... Silly logic must be used for someone to act wickedly day after day after day and to have no interest in Christ's Word, no interest in Christ's will, no interest in Christ's people, no interest in Christ's kingdom, and yet to say, I follow Christ. Imagine that we know someone who's a doctor Everyone knows that this man is a doctor. He goes to his office every day. He sees patients. He gives diagnoses. He writes prescriptions. He wears medical garments. Uses medical tools. Participates in medical discussions. It is blatantly obvious he's a doctor. But if you were to ask him, are you a doctor? He would say, of course not. I'm an astronaut. Though he lives and breathes as a doctor every day, he thinks he's an astronaut. What would we think of such a person? Would we not assume that something has gone wrong in his mind? Something has drastically distorted his judgment so that he can he functions well in this world of ours. He may even be an excellent doctor. But there's something screwy going on up here. Well, this is how it is with so many in our culture and how it could even be with us. We can live worldly lives, right? So many who... They live with their boyfriend, live with their girlfriend, engage in acts that they know to be against Christ's will. Ignore all things that relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe attend church sporadically. No commitment to Christ or His people. Watch movies that Christ would disapprove of. Listen to music that is offensive to the Lord Jesus Christ. Things that ought to disturb them and they find delight in them. They are worldlings through and through living in sin. And yet if you ask them, are you a servant of sin or a servant of Christ? They would say, I'm on the side of Christ. Yes, I do everything as a worldling does, but I'm a Christian. Sin has a way of making us screwy up here when it comes to our assessment of ourselves. So that Paul has to say the most obvious of truths. The one you're obeying. That's your master. I don't want to preach this as if we're just talking about people out there. This is a temptation for us. This can happen to us, that we can become deceived in this way. And it's why we need brothers and sisters in Christ who can come to us with reality checks from time to time. Sin makes us not see the most obvious truths about ourselves. And so verse 16 is a God-given, gracious reality check that if you are giving yourself to the service of sin, you are sins, and therefore you are not under grace. You are still under law. Here is why we must be careful about the sinful tendencies in our lives. If we begin to give ourselves over and over again to sinful desires. Sinful desires that we give ourselves over to will always lead to greater sinful desires. And the more we give ourselves to sin happily, complacently, no longer fighting, just giving ourselves to sin, the more we do that, the more our desire for Christ will wane. The more our desire to be useful to our Savior will dry up. Our heart will and our minds will be caught up in sinful habits. And before long, we will show by our actions that we are not Christ. And everyone else may see it, and we don't see it. Because we've been blinded by our own sin. Sin is still our master, and though we hid it well for a while, it's now obvious to those who think rightly about these things that we are not Christ. So one lesson here is that we cannot play fast and loose with sin. When wicked desires come, we must deny them. And we must cultivate in our hearts every day greater love for God, happy submission to God, greater desire to obey eagerly every gracious command He sends our way. Now there's a second point in verse 16. The point is this. Your master determines your destiny. Your master determines your destiny. Look at verse 16 again, and as we read verse 16, I want you to focus particularly on the second half of the verse. The second half of the verse, but we'll start at the beginning. Verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So you can give yourself to a master called sin, or you can give yourself to a master which here is called obedience. And whichever master you choose is going to lead you somewhere. That's what masters do. Masters give orders. Masters give guidance and direction, and those directions have consequences. So if you give yourself to this master called sin, the result will be death. The wages of sin is death. The wrath of God poured out upon you for eternity. Eternal death. That's where this master called sin leads. If sin is your master, you are being led to a place that ought to frighten you. A place that ought to make you tremble and quake. How can a person sleep at night when they are living in the service of sin? The only way a person can sleep at night when they are living in the service of sin is either by being ignorant of the hell to which they are headed or by suppressing all thoughts of that place within themselves. They can try really, really hard to convince themselves there is no day of judgment coming. There is no accountability that will happen for my actions. There is no day of reckoning and there is no hell. And they can try and convince themselves of it, but death is coming. Not just physical, but eternal death. Think again about our puppy. Let's go back to our illustration with the puppy and how the puppy has more or less made the wife... It's master. The fate of that puppy now lies in the hands of the wife, whether she likes it or not. Because when the wife speaks, the puppy obeys. If the wife is a good, a good master, she might bring the puppy to an open park and command him to run. And the, the puppy will run in the open park and, and have a great time and be satisfied and it would be a, a wonderful experience for the puppy but what if she's a wicked woman? She takes the puppy out to a major intersection and says, run. And the puppy obeys. Well, The puppy will get hit by a car. The puppy will die. You see, everything depends on the kind of master you serve. Everything depends on the kind of master you are serving. Sin is a terrible master. Your sinful desires seem so tempting in the moment. They have such a, a pull on your soul, pulling on you to do this thing, to say that thing, to think that thing. Sinful desires pulling on you, but they're pulling you towards death. Does it feel like death? The puppy doesn't know what's coming. On the other hand, Obedience to Christ is a wonderful master to give yourself to. Dear Christian, those holy desires within you, given to you by the Holy Spirit, they will not lead you wrong. These holy desires that are in accordance with the Word of God, being born within you by the Holy Spirit who now dwells within you, Follow those desires and they will lead you to blamelessness, to sanctification, to standing before God holy on the last day. Heaven is your home. The desire to love. The desire to serve. The desire to to be patient and to give and to be pure the desire to stand up for what is right, and the desire to strive for excellence in all your doings, these are the desires that should reign in your life. Serve those desires. If you serve those desires, you are serving Christ. Where do those desires take you? Where does this master called obedience in verse 16 take you? Master takes you into holiness, into righteousness, into Christ likeness. Giving yourselves to these good desires will make you a blessing in this world, a blessing to all around you, a blessing to Christ and his gospel and his calls. So we see this principle. Your master determines your destiny. That's why the defense of the Christian life is don't give yourself to that master called sin when he seeks to give you commands through desires within you. Deny them. And here's your offense. Give yourself fully to the will of God and may your desires be to do the will of God in heaven. Okay. Verses 17 and 18 Verses 17 and 18, we see that Paul is not saying here that the church in Rome is made up of a bunch of hypocrites. That is, Paul is not suggesting with these words that it's these Christians in Rome who are, in fact, not Christians at all, but servants of sin. In other words, he doesn't want them to get the wrong impression. Paul, why are you telling us these things? Paul, do you think that we as a church are are a bunch of hypocrites who aren't really Christians? See, Paul had never been to the church in Rome. Paul didn't really know most of these people. He, He has plans. When he writes this letter, he has plans to visit them. In fact, part of the purpose of this letter is to prepare them for his visit. And he does know a few members here and there. We know he knows Priscilla and Aquila, whom he met in Corinth, and they have now come to Rome and are a part of the church in Rome. He respects them highly. The reports that Paul is getting concerning the church in Rome are positive, encouraging reports. Paul says in chapter 1 that the faith of these Roman Christians is being proclaimed throughout the entire world. So Paul has every reason to have confidence in the salvation of the people he's writing to. And so to make this clear, and to give glory to God for what has happened in their lives, he adds verses 17 and 18. So look at them with me again. Verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. God has done a work in you, Roman Christians. That's what Paul's saying here. You're no longer slaves of sin. You are slaves of righteousness. You have become obedient from the heart. I see in these verses three truths plainly stated about what it means to be a slave of righteousness. Three truths about what it means to be a slave of righteousness. Three truths concerning what the Christian life looks like and our service to Christ. These are three truths about our obedience to Jesus Christ. And the first one is this. Obedience to Jesus in a Christian is an obedience to the standard of teaching to which we are committed. Did you see that? Obedience to Jesus... Means obedience to a standard of teaching to which we have been committed. Paul, we would expect him to say, thanks be to God, you've been made obedient to Jesus, because that is what he's saying. But instead of saying, thanks be to God, you've been made obedient to Jesus, he says, Thanks be to God, you've been made obedient, you've been made obedient to a standard of teaching to which you were committed. What does that mean? What is the standard of teaching that he's talking about? Well, The teaching here refers to all of the teaching that had come to these Christians from God. The Old Testament Scriptures, probably predominantly what he has in mind, but we can include with that the teaching that they had received from other apostles and Christian teachers. In the moment of being born again, God changed their hearts and committed these men and women to Christ. And to be committed to Christ is to be committed to God's Word. Do you see the connection in this verse? That is clear. To be committed to Christ is to be committed to the teaching of God. Notice, by the way, that it wasn't the Roman Christians who did the committing. Do you see that? Does it say, to which you committed yourselves to which you were committed. Passive. Somebody else committed you to this teaching. Now, when they were baptized in the name of Jesus, they absolutely were professing their faith and committing themselves to serve Christ by serving the Word of God. But the most important committing that took place in their lives was the committing that happened by God when He changed their hearts by the Gospel and gave them a new heart that would be committed to the Word. This is why Paul says, the standard of teaching to which you were committed. There's more going on here than just obedience to the Word of God. When God changed the hearts of these Christians, He caused them to be committed not just to the teaching, but to the standard of teaching. That word standard can also be translated as form, pattern, It isn't merely that we as Christians are now committed to the the Word of God. We're now servants of the Word of God. We are committed to the very nature, the very pattern of that righteousness, which the Word of God teaches. And what is that pattern, that form that the Word of God teaches? What is that standard of righteousness which the Word of God teaches? It's Christ Himself. It's the character of Jesus. Every word of the teaching of God is meant to point us towards Christ-likeness. Every word is meant to point us towards the righteousness of Jesus. The Pharisees were committed to the letter of the law. And they were far from being committed to true righteousness. Christians are those who have been delivered into a love for God's Word and a love for the righteousness of Christ that we find being put together before our eyes in the Word of God. Is that true for you? Do you you know what I'm talking about? As you read the Word of God and you see more and more of the glory of Christ being revealed to you there, more and more of what what His holiness is like, is, is that what it's like for you reading the Word of God? Does that draw your heart towards Christ? And as you see Him painted in all of the holy colors in the Bible, does your heart not say, I want to be like that. It's my desire. I'm not just committed to this book. I'm committed to the kind of righteousness that this book is calling me to. I'm committed to the very character of Christ. Because I'm committed to Christ himself. I don't know why uh, it popped in my head, that song. Um, oh, I know why. From a conversation I had with Brian Thompson. Um, the old song, I Want to Be Like Mike. Uh, Michael Jordan, right? People love Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was their hero. Well, when you love somebody, isn't there something within you that wants to be like them? Right? If you like Michael Jordan, you want to be like Michael Jordan. Well, if your eyes are coming to grasp the glory of Jesus Christ, there should be something within you saying, I want to be like that. I don't want to take him from his throne as the Son of God. I don't want to compete with him for the allegiance of the world. I just want to be holy the way he is holy. Calvin says about this word standard, he says, It seems to me that this word denotes the formed image or impress of that righteousness which Christ engraves on our hearts, and that this corresponds with the prescribed rule of law, according to which all our actions ought to be framed, so that they deviate not either to the left or the right hand. Now the second truth in these verses is that obedience to Jesus in a Christian is obedience from the heart. Obedience to Jesus in a Christian is obedience from the heart. Do you see that in the verse? He, he just says it blank. blank right? From the heart. This is what makes true believers different from, from hypocrites, from false believers. We do not give ourselves to Christ outwardly while giving ourselves to sin inwardly. Those still enslaved to sin might come to church and sing and pray and even serve. Preachers can still be enslaved to sin while being very preacher like. Inwardly, their hearts can be so full of pride, self conceit. Secretly, they want others to notice their good works. They want others to speak highly of them. They want others to give them their due. That person in private is someone very different from the person being put on display in public. Or maybe they're like David Brainerd. And I did this afternoon listen to the message that Merle preached this morning. And um, Merle, I think it was the finest sermon I have ever heard you preach. Um, It was very encouraging to my soul. And it was nobody else needed it. It was exactly what I needed this afternoon as I was pacing around the sanctuary listening to it on these speakers. Um, but what a strange providence of God that I had David Brainerd in my sermon, you had David Brainerd in your sermon. Um, God wants us to know about David Brainerd today. I don't know why that is, but he must. Um, as Merrill mentioned this morning, David Brainerd was a great missionary uh, to the Native Americans of New England. Um, Jonathan Edwards published his diary once David Brainerd had passed away. And God used David Brainerd's diary to really... Uh, the spark of the modern missions movement had begun with William Carey. David Brainerd's diary took that spark and made it a flame. Okay? And we're still living in the results of that becoming a flame the Southern Baptist Convention and the International Mission Board and the Annie Armstrong and the Lottie Moon Offering, all of that stuff comes out of that flame of modern missions that began uh, with William Carey and became big because of the influence of things, particularly like the Diary of David Brainerd. Untold, untold number of Christians around the world brought to the Lord Jesus Christ through missionaries who were brought to give their lives to missions through the influence of that diary. But David Brainerd did not start out that way. David Brainerd started out his life as a young man with all of the trappings of religion and none of the heart. Any one of us, any one of us would have looked at David Brainerd as a young man and said, surely, if anyone's a Christian, it's him. He grew up in a home that was far more strict about Christianity than any of the homes that we have. As far as the number of times they pray today, the amount of time they spend in family worship and in private Bible study, the things that they did in their own local church. David Brainerd's family was a family absolutely committed to the Word, to prayer, to to Christian church involvement. And as a young man, David Brainerd's life had all of the outward evidences of belonging to Jesus. But his obedience was not from the heart. His heart, and here, still served sin. And and there was pride, and there was a desire to earn God's favor through his own righteous works, motivating all that he did. His life was still about serving self and the glory of self, but it was all in here. Nobody else could see it. Brainerd later looked back on his life as a 19, 20-year-old young man and said that his religion was very careful and very serious, but there was no grace in it. He said, All my good frames were but self-righteousness. They were not bottomed on a desire for the glory of God. There was no more goodness in my praying than there would be in my paddling with my hands in the water. He says, My prayers were not performed from any love or regard for God. I never once prayed for the glory of God. I never once intended His honor and His glory. I never once acted for God in all of my devotions. I never had any regard in them to the glory of God. Isaiah talked about people who honor God with their lips while their hearts are far from Him. That was true of David Brainerd as a young man. And God graciously began to reveal this to him. I hope there's no one in here that needs to come to that realization. but We should probably all take this to heart. Listen as Brainerd describes what happened to him when he was 21. 21 years old. Listen to the change in heart that's evident. It was just before sunset. He was depressed, bouts of depression his whole life. He was in one of his bouts of depression. He was uh, walking. He says, I was walking in a dark, thick grave. That's a, a metaphor. He was depressed. I was walking in a dark, thick grave. And as I did, unspeakable glory seemed to open to the view and the apprehension of my soul. It was a new inward apprehension or view that I had of God such as I had never had before nor anything that I had the least remembrance of so that I just stood still and wondered and admired I had now no particular apprehension of any one person of the Trinity, either the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit but it appeared to be divine glory, splendor that I beheld and my soul rejoiced with joy unspeakable to see such a God, such a gloriously divine being, and I was inwardly pleased and satisfied that He should be God over all, forever and ever. My soul was captivated and delighted with the excellency, the loveliness and the greatness and other perfections of God so that I was even swallowed up in Him at least to the degree that I had no thought, as I remember at first, about my own salvation, or scarce that there was such a creature as I. And thus the Lord, I trust, brought me to a hearty desire to exalt Him, to set Him on the throne, to seek first His kingdom, That is, principally and ultimately to aim at His honor and glory as the King and Sovereign of the universe, which is the foundation of the religion of of Jesus. He said, I felt myself in a new world. You see, suddenly life lived for Himself became life lived unto God because He had a glimpse, a taste of the glory of God. There was real faith, it was real repentance. But here's the thing about David Brainerd. After his conversion, in many ways, he did not change. In many ways, he did not change because he kept on doing the things he had always done. He used to pray, he used to read the Bible, he used to be faithful in church. He used to live and act as a Christian. So now, after his conversion, he was doing the very same things. Outwardly, very little changed in Brainerd's life. And yet, everything had changed. You see, true Christian obedience to Jesus is obedience from the heart. Giving yourself in service to righteousness means giving yourself with a proper frame of, of willingness, happy submission, love for the glory of God. Have you experienced this? Because I fear we live in a Bible belt in which there are hundreds of thousands, of not, if not millions, of people with all the trappings of religion, but they don't know what it is to obey. Out of a love for the glory of God. Almost done. The, the third truth in these verses is that obedience to Jesus in a Christian is a gift of God. The true, third truth we see in these verses is that this kind of obedience, this obedience from the heart to Jesus Christ, is a gift of God, a gift of his grace. What Paul is describing here is the is real salvation. Salvation that was purchased at the cross of Christ. And what Jesus did 2,000 years ago has real effects right here, right now, in the lives of human beings. They are dead to sin. And though they fall into sin time and again, they no longer want to serve sin. They are fighting sin. They are giving themselves every day to the service of God. They want to serve God. They want to be useful to God. If you've experienced that, you've experienced God's grace. God purposed this salvation. God designed this salvation. He brought His Son to the cross. It is He who gave His Son the power to give this new life to all that He wills. If you love Christ and are seeking to live for His glory, praise God! It was His grace that did this in you. He has done this miracle in your life. Give Him the glory. We sing this pretty often. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. The joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone, from the first to the last, has won my affections and bound my soul fast. Paul says, Thanks be to God. So let us not be deceived. Let us hear the reality check. We've either died to sin and now serve Christ, For we have not died to sin and we are still giving ourselves to it. If we are true Christians, then let us deny sinful desires and let us give ourselves happily in submission to our Savior who loves us. Amen?